Welcome everyone, I'm Sally. I'm John, we are True Crime Investigators UK. John was a police officer serving for 30 years and most of those years he was a detective. Sally was a police officer before retraining as a lawyer to practice criminal law. And now we may be retired but we still review and investigate cases of interest and bring them to you through this podcast. For additional resources you can visit our website truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk and please remember to follow the show on your podcast app and that way you'll be notified of all the new episodes. This is the fourth and final episode of The Old Man and Me, the Tony Spencer story, told in the words of his son, Jason. This series really has had it all, but there's still more to come, and we're back with Jason. So in 2007, your dad had finished his Spanish sentence and has now returned to the UK. He's nowhere to go, so stays with you initially for the first 24 hours. Yeah, then he moved on. He stayed at his sister's for a few days, and then he moved on to some accommodation that was offered to him. And then he tended to bounce around a little while. One reason was he was raising some finance, and he obviously had plans and he had a small group of people who were all, well, what are you going to do next, Tony? Well, you've been away so many years and I'm broke and we could do with doing something. So there's a collection of people who all wanted to get involved. Some of them wanted to invest. And they were like, well, I can put in so much to get things moving. I can put in so much. And so that's gradually this this uh, network of people start coming together. My dad's found out a lot of the people he used to deal with have gone by now. Some of them have got older and retired. They've either made their money or they haven't. But either way, they've probably had enough. A lot of the workers have now got families and they... They no longer have the appetite for it. So you've kind of got, uh, I suppose, misfits that just haven't, are kind of dissatisfied and want to earn a living and still want to give it another go. There's a few people, and it's kind of a strange cast, where there was a middleweight boxer who worked with my dad in Spain. He was kind of down on his luck, and he he wanted to go back to work again. He wanted to get back to what my dad was doing. And then there was a prison governor who my dad had formed a friendship with over the years, a disgraced governor who had been to prison himself. And he wanted to work with my dad again and, and do something. And then the, he had a girlfriend at the time who was very wealthy, but at the same time she wanted to kind of go along for the ride on something, and she wasn't wouldn't censor anything he did. And there was this, so there's this cast of characters that started to form. And then there was a, a young lad who worked in banking, and he he wanted to be part of it, and he was a son of one of his workers. And there was a son of a, a friend over Leicester as well. He was a, his father had died, and he wanted to following his father's footsteps, I suppose. So there was quite a few people who were looking up to him and saying, we can do something. And my dad, he didn't really need a lot of persuading. The problem he had was raising the finance. A lot of his old contacts just weren't available, so it's partly starting afresh. And because he'd been out of of the country for so long, his international contacts were never better because he had that many Colombian contacts now and contacts in Spain on the continent. But he'd been away from the UK for about seven years. So his UK contacts dwindled. You've got this cast of characters, as you describe, all wanting to do something with your dad and work with your dad. What I was going to ask was, did your dad still have the same appetite and do it all over again? There were other things put to him during this period. One was one of his lawyers had said, well, why don't you do legal work for us now you're back? You know, loads of people, you can bring us cases. Why, why not do that? You're very good at it anyway. You've been doing it for years and that'd be a way of you earning a legal living now you're getting older. And so he'd entertain this idea and said, maybe I might, I might not. But he wasn't that serious about that. It was all right doing legal cases when he was inside and he had time to do them. But on the outside, it wasn't a serious proposition. There's, there's more alternatives outside. Yeah. Potential for some media work as well. His name was quite known. There's a few people in the media says, well, you could be like on Sky's Hardest Men. Why not do an episode on that? Maybe just try some media work. 
and he entertained that idea for about 30 seconds. No, 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 that's not me. It seemed the only thing he wanted to do was some sort of villainy, and the obvious and easy thing was to do what he did before, but now he had all these foreign contacts. He had them before, but these they'd kind of renewed themselves. The older contacts might have moved on, but now he had loads of new contacts. They were very rich over Spain and South America. He was looking at doing something there. It just seemed all the pieces were there, and it's just a case he had to step up and play the part he played before. And he wanted to get back into that role again. How did he progress that? How did he make that move forward? Well, initially, he started to do a few things between here and Amsterdam. One was like pound coins. There was They were manufacturing hundreds of thousands of pound coins every week in Amsterdam and then shipping them over and then trading them because they were quite easy to launder. They were just they were just a lot of bulk, but they were quite safe to launder. It was just the bulk of them that was the issue. And then there was some bank fraud he got involved with as well. It's like the fraud he might have done in the 70s where he was a ducking and diving businessman. He did that and he kind of liked that, though he, I don't think he really grasped that how the computers work and the, the footprints you left behind. So he kind of retreated from that quite quickly. And then he had a few people who says, well, look, I'll put the money in. If I put 50 in, in time, that'll become 100, won't it? And a few people did that. And that's how he started going back to Amsterdam, connecting with new suppliers and started to build up a new little network again. This is drug suppliers. Drug supplying. Again. again, it was always the same two. It was always hash and amphetamine, which were B and C. So the operations aren't too heavy. And his thinking was, well, I could do this for a little while. As soon as I've done enough, I'll get overseas because they know me. They've watched me day one. I can't go on like I did before, but I've got to do a bit and get straight out. And the people who are working with him all said the same, you yeah, once we've done the first couple, you need to get out. And so they start kind of linking up with a few other groups up in Grantham and uh, down in Essex. And it ends up with there's 10 key players and my dad's the head guy. And they're going to do this new ring between here and Holland. Except there's been a little bit of a change. My dad's no longer the patient person he was in his 40s. And this time he takes flights, which is, he drummed into me when he started. You don't take flights, they leave records. And so you drive mm-hmm. everywhere. So he starts taking flights, which I didn't think was too wise, but he thinks he's going overseas anyway. And they know what he's doing, but he thinks it's only going to be for a while. By the time they come on to me and come after me, I'll be gone. It's like the Scarlet Pimpernel, he seems to... (laughs) Maybe he's he's got a slightly different plan up ahead. And at this point, he's based in a a little unit living in a caravan. He's got three caravans. He seems to like these caravans because, like I said, if you think one's bought, you can just switch them. You just get rid of one, put a new one in. And so, and he has just this thing where he has a few bases again. He starts doing that again and building up his network and then hopping between Amsterdam and sorting these shipments out. But all the while, quite early, there's a police surveillance operation now and then comes on him. And I know this because one of those Sundays I go to visit him. As I come down, he just says, just watch the bush on the right there's a camera in there. So and this, this is at the entrance to this uh, farm he's, he's staying at. And they're all doing that. So when you go around there, you just cover the side of your head as you... Not that's going to make a great deal of difference, but you just don't feel that comfortable. And you don't bring your car to the farmhouse. I didn't anyway. So I thought, I don't want to be perceived as being part of whatever he's doing now. Though it doesn't take a great deal to guess what it is. When you say put 50 in these people who were invested, that were £50,000. Yeah, they put 50, 50 grand. Quid. Yeah, yeah they yeah. put 50 grand, grand in there. Yeah. So that was to build like a syndicate of money to expand. Yeah, because they knew he'd come back and he, he couldn't have any money because he'd been away so long and he'd been in prison so long. Because when we've spoke before, I mean, God knows how much money your father had through his hands. It'd be millions and millions of pounds without exaggeration, yeah. wouldn't it? yeah. And of course, as you say, you build it up, you lose it when you go in prison and you give assets away because that that was history, we move on when we get out of prison. And at the stage he was finding himself, presumably hadn't got a lot of money. No, he, he had his contacts, which is he always thought his greatest asset was his knowledge and his contacts. Because if he had some phones, he could make money very quickly. And that's really what counted. And it's the thing that most people didn't have. They just never had the contacts, but they might have money. 
and it might be honestly earned or dishonest, but they only had money. They just couldn't do the things he could do and, and join up with the people that he could. So now he's running with his present crew, so to speak, which is yeah. an ex-prison governor who's fell from grace, really, and has to turn to crime. I'm sure because of his position, he would, he would know a few people, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> He was, you know, he's, he's well-placed for knowing what people have done like your dad. And Was he prison governor of a prison your dad had been in? Not one he'd been in. He'd been a governor of prisons where my dad's friends had been there and they knew him as a prison governor. So when they'd have a meeting, they'd be like, I'm not having a meeting with him about, I'll see you on your own, but I'm not speaking in front of him. Because he'd been a prison governor, a lot of the, the villains just weren't happy with him being part of it. But at the same time, they knew, well, my dad trusts him, so... We'll trust him so far, but always remember, he was a prison governor and you can't, you can't trust him completely. And then he's got somebody in a bank. Yeah, an inside man who was a banker, a very dissatisfied guy working in a bank who thought, my father's been involved in this sort of thing. I, this tone is fantastic. There were other people he could have looked up to, but he looked up to villains and he, he kind of bought into that. Everything on the surface is what you see and that's all there is. And he really admired him, which a lot of the younger ones did by then because he'd done everything they hadn't done, and he could tell stories about the money he'd made, and he had this reputation. They're very envious. So there wasn't many areas that he hadn't got a contact in or could get one, no matter what it was, yeah, yeah. in reality. That's how the criminal network works, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of people who wanted to invest with him, a lot of it was, look, I've got a few problems. I'm going to put 50 in. Can you just sort this out for me? Because I've got this problem I can't entangle because I don't know the right people. And he just made some phone calls and tangled the problems. And he's got a 50 grand investment and a lot of goodwill. And there's quite a few. There's always strings when people put things in. But there were always things they knew he could sort out. And he enjoyed getting in touch with old people to sort their problems out. So the enterprise starts again, importing from Amsterdam and yeah. other European countries, no doubt, coming into the UK and distribution networks in the UK. That ran for how long? Well, they were just getting started on that. They'd done a few test runs. And then the actual thing was beginning, except... The police surveillance, it wasn't like it was before. The MO had completely changed. And whether that was the times or because of his history, this time they didn't just focus on him. They focused on all the others, all 10 people involved in what would be a conspiracy. And they put international intercepts on about, I think it's eight of them they'd put intercepts on. You've got everything. You've got undercover officers at tables in pubs and everything and following them, putting the modern trackers on cars. You've got the international intercepts that follow you across international boundaries. Because the idea, they always felt once you went through a boundary, you're kind of safe from the old police because there's a new lot and they don't really work together very well. But that was changing because the British police were now working with the Dutch police. British were senior, but the Dutch were cooperating, which normally doesn't happen very easily. I think uh, it had got to the period in history when, like the regional crime squad, as I started, as we spoke, you know, started talking, going back to the 70s, that was a big moment when cross-border policing as a unit that travelled across borders within the UK. When you start going into Europe, you've got all problems, legal problems, haven't you, Sally, with different laws, mm. different jurisdictions, yeah. different permissions, different systems generally, and also the trust issue of, you know, we're Dutch, Spanish, whoever you are, and you're English and don't speak the language. Yeah. And, and I think... As time went on and, and as crime was growing across the whole of Europe and the world, of course, and the modern age of technology, whoever must have said, well, there's only one way to solve this, and that's cross-border, cross-country cooperation. 
And I think that's what they must have deployed against Tony. They must have thought, this guy's run rings round us in many ways. We've won a few battles, he's won a few, but let's set our stall out now and, yeah. and cooperate It's together. almost like Jaws where they say, we need a bigger boat. Yes. And we need a bigger net. We need to go international, just like the criminals are. Yes. Now, when he was in the UK, he would have surveillance on him occasionally. But now, when he went to Holland, he'd also have surveillance on him. Yeah. And that just hadn't happened before in a coordinated fashion. And, of course, coordinating, as you say, the intercepts, which are telephone intercepts. Yeah. They coordinate that through the countries where they knew it was operating and then link all the jigsaw pieces together, really. Yeah, and there was one thing the Dutch did that no one else did. They would activate the software on the phones to act as bugs as well, like an anti-terrorism device. And they were starting to use that with Dutch gangsters as well. And they started to do that with your phone intercepts because some of them were more like roving bugs where... They'd be recording the conversation before the phone was even picked up because there were some valuable quotes there. And so the intercepts were running over the phone calls. So it's quite clear they were activating the phones in a way they wouldn't normally. And you have knowledge of this because that was disclosed at the trial. Yeah, that would be disclosed later and experts from Holland would come over to confirm that was that was what was happening. And it was happening in Holland and it was accepted, but in the UK it just wasn't. You couldn't do that and get it into a court. Yeah. And if you tried the... The threat was the intercepts would get ruled out as illegal and the later case would be reliant on intercepts, really. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, it was used for intelligence purposes, not evidence. Yeah. Whereas in other countries, it was evidence. Yeah, in Holland, where they've got the three judges, it's a little bit different to our jury service. And so we're sort of moving into almost James Bond territory, aren't we? Yeah. Where there's international cooperation and lots of resources and technology going to be deployed this time and it's i've no idea what the planning was no idea who took part but if you imagine around a table they must have thought right we've had enough of tony spencer <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's do something together to stop this and i'm sure that conversation went like that and the others of course all of a sudden is now up against a lot more of a technological intrusion into what he's doing and it doesn't help that he's hopping these flights everywhere back and forth even though he thinks it's not going to last long, but it just means he's, he's a lot easier to follow. Whereas if he was driving everywhere, it's a lot more difficult to track him when he's going across different countries in cars and switching cars like he did in the old days. Now he's not switching. It's just a, a bit more impatience, maybe because he's older or because he figures he's moving soon. But it's really the week before he's about to leave and go to Spain, he has a shipment coming in, a big one. And at that point, he goes to Holland. Like he normally would, he'd catch a flight, probably the third flight he'd caught that week. And he went out to the farmhouse to just kind of tie up the loose ends with this shipment that was coming over and and known that the phones were taking the surveillance operation there, the Dutch, and they surrounded this farmhouse he was at and they got ready with all these helicopters and uh, there was a bulldozer on the standby and they had all these engineers close to the property, been watching it for days, phone engineers. And while he was in there, he figured these phone engineers, their surveillance, and I think they're on us already. So he prepared for this raid and sure enough, with about 20 minutes, the bulldozer had come through the gates and all these armed Dutch police swarmed into the farmhouse. How long had that been running, that operation, since they restarted it with the prison governor? How long had they been running? I think that section of the operation had been going for like three months, but they'd been on him before that, and then they hop off again. They're just waiting for something meaty to happen. But once he starts doing all these flights to Holland, they think, well, this is it. Now it is happening. We need to be on him because it's, it is going to kick off now. Things are going to happen, and this is the, we've just got to get ready to strike and start locating on how he's working and get all the players. So if somebody's made a decision, that's it, the arrests are called and the bulldozer way in through the Yeah, it weighs outer perimeter. They swarm in. By that point, there's not that many drugs in the property, which is what they don't realise, 
because it's one of the first runs. So I think there's something like 200, it might be 200 uh, hash and 50 amphetamine. It's not a lot, a big shipment at all. It's small. It might not even be the largest shipment. And that's kilos. That's kilos, yes. Uh, so they're in bags on the other, in a different room. And when the bulldozers come, him and the other workers are sitting there playing cards, waiting for it to come in. And they're not trying to act innocent. Uh, but they know what's going to happen. So they're just all arrested and remanded in Holland. Uh, but the problem is they've been arrested on possession in Holland. And the Dutch have arrested him. And effectively, it's a Dutch case. And in Holland, you're not looking at a big sentence for that. So though the British have been directing the Dutch, it's a Dutch case they've found where the British aren't involved in the arrest in any way. The Dutch are quite happy to charge him. But he's only looking at a few years. He might be looking at four might be out in two, and it's quite easy time in Holland. And the fact they can't prove he's in control of the shipment, he may even get less than four. So it's not looking good. Uh, so the British won him in the UK for conspiracy, and the Dutch ordinarily won't extradite for someone for conspiracy. And at this stage, no one in Britain's been touched out of this group of his, but they know what's happened in Holland, and they're all just thinking, well, why haven't we been raided? And the only conclusion they can come to, and it soon transpires, is they've been on your phones for a while now. They don't have to raid you because they've got these phone intercepts. They know what you've been doing. So it doesn't matter now. They're, they're going to come at some point. But the big problem they've got is my dad's in Holland on possession. How do we get him back? And at that point, there's a lot of horse trading going on behind the scenes. The Dutch lawyers advise they're never going to be able to get him back to the UK because the Dutch law doesn't work like that. But the Dutch law is very practical. A deal's done. And then one day they just extradite and bring him back to the UK. And that morning, as he arrives in the UK, all the other addresses are raided, all in Grantham and Essex and Coventry and Eton. They're going on all these figures, the prison governor, the ex-boxer and the banker and all these other guys that go in and get them all. And they're all remanded to Winston Green Prison. So there's obviously a mass coordinated strike on all these properties. They've got Tony from Holland. Subsequently, there'd be, a, again, another big trial. Yeah. Uh, which... Seems to be the order of, yeah. <laughs> of Tony's life, doesn't it? Going from one trial to the next. But it's of a different character this time because usually it's about him and maybe one other person. This is about 10. 10 people spread across the country and there's these international phone intercepts and it's across two countries and the scale is bigger. When it's just about him, it's easy to focus. You haven't got a group to manage. But he finds himself just on the outside as he was managing this group. He's got to manage them inside as well because they're all put at Winston Green Prison, all t 10 defendants. Uh, they're on two different wings. And I think the idea, as he explains to me, they're trying to create a pressure cooker environment where one or two are going to break and they're going to say, hold on a minute, I was only a small player. If I go guilty, I'll, I'll get six months, I might even get off. So it's trying to break up the group with the minor players betraying the larger players. And a lot of them thinking, if it weren't for that Tony, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So his... his Issue is he's got to manage this group, keep them together and get them moving as a herd with him leading them. And that's the pressure cooker environment of being in a prison and trying to guide and make it good for everybody and somehow work together as a team. So subsequently there'll be a trial. Yeah. Who defended him this time? This again would be Charlie Benson. And Charlie was of the view, why does it have to be at Birmingham? I'd rather it was near my house. But he says, for your dad, I'll travel to Birmingham and I'll do this trial for him. He said, I wouldn't do it for anybody else, but I'll do it for your dad because we're kind of good friends. And so Charlie comes up to do this for him. This is 12 months before going to trial. During that time, all the evidence is disclosed and all the defendants see who said what, who's been caught on camera doing what. Uh, it, it works out that there's been cameras following them for months and they've even got uh, footage of two of them burying an underground safe where all the drugs were going to be stashed. And they've got footage of them just 
digging this out, putting the safe in, concreting it. And they've also found safes elsewhere, which were all designed to be stashes for money or for drugs. Uh, so they've got those as well. They've got all the footage. They've got the phone intercepts. My dad's made no damaging comments, but the people around him, a few of them have made things that could be interpreted that way. And their drugs code's not as good as the old one. When they did cigarettes, everyone stuck to it and they were consistent. But now they're using different phrases like green paint and horses and jockeys. And it's a little bit too too obvious, the code is. So it's not as good as it used to be. And it's all there's all these flight records as well, which are difficult to explain. And the safes, were they literally safes, like money safes? Yeah, the money safes where you can go in from above. So if you know where they are, you can lift up, say it's under a, a patio, you can just take up the slab and then just pull the flap up and or undo the key and... And you just put them under there and they're safe. Some neutralizer for in case police dogs ever come so they wouldn't be found. And that so was in people's gardens? This or? was in people's gardens. So some of the defendants were like, well, I've got this safe in my garden. How do I get it out? Because when the police come, how are we going to explain that? Mm-hmm. And some of them managed to rip them out and some of them didn't. And the prison governor was one who didn't. So when he arrested, they were like, well, how can you explain this safe under your patio? <laughs> and obviously he couldn't because it was a new built house as well. There'd been no previous tenants it's obviously happened during the six months you've been here and then he was videoed uh, passing over money to people and going for meetings and paying for flights on his credit card he was it created a, a real big problem for himself so it sounds completely not out of character but more of a sloppy operation to what he did it, it was hor- a horrid operation i'd say yeah. yeah he was very skilled and disciplined in his earlier life wasn't he yeah this is like police have got the advantage of cooperation and technology but they've also got them at a, at a not being vigilant they're not being as group they're not being as sharp as they should be is that an age thing or are they, are they just i think greedy? Was, well my dad it was an impatience thing which is why he was going to be getting to spain as soon as possible it was always i'm going to spain next week next week and next week ended up being the week he got done it eventually but he was always i've got i've got to get out uh, once I've gone, it doesn't matter about the records once I've gone. Because it's conspiracy, they can't pull you back for conspiracy. But he just stayed too long. And like I said, the people he was working with, some of them were quite sloppy. Some of them were, were professional, but some weren't. So they're all banged up in Winton Green. What happens at the court? At the court, by this time, they've realised who's made the damaging comments. they realised that one of them crumbled under questioning and pretty much gave them up and then retracted a statement, but the damage was done. But still, they stuck together. And by the time they get to court, they will kind of accept that there's a few people who have really let us down. And a few of us have created no problems at all, but we're together anyway. And it's together we stand divided before. And the aim is to get these intercepts ruled out. Because if they're ruled out, the whole case just collapses. And that is the why they bring experts in from Holland. And why he has to get Charlie Benson to make this argument for the phone intercepts to be thrown out. With the argument, this roving bug... This uh, activating of software when a phone is illegal and every intercept has to be thrown out because without them there's no case. But what actually happened? when? What was the legal argument that got got it in? It was simply, they just said, well, look, this is evidence. They've clearly said this. And I think they had grounds for appeal, but it was going in regardless. There was just no stopping these intercepts going in. There was kind of arguments over where the strings were being pulled, but it was in anyway. You've got to live with it and the trial's going to happen. But my father's argument was it might get it in but if it goes into a courtroom it'll get reported because we had two uh, top journalists uh, one was nick davis who was going to report it in a british trial and the problem with that once it's talked about in a british trial and it's reported every other case involving international intercepts or intercepts of any sort like that they're going to get looked at again 
and a lot of those cases could get thrown out because of intercept evidence. And that was the risk the, uh, the police were running. Um, and that's why Nick Davis was there and he had all the intercepts and he was ready to report on it. It'd be interesting, Sally, if we ever get to speak to Mr Benson QC, what the legal position was, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a minefield, all that kind of thing. And to argue, to include something, evidence like that, or to exclude evidence like that is, uh, you know, you're really playing um, mental gymnastics, aren't you? So at the trial, clearly the arguments from the defence failed to exclude this evidence. Yeah. So it got admitted. So it was admitted, but it doesn't mean it was going to get heard because my, my dad's thinking was, there's no way they're going to allow it to be heard in court. They'll do a deal. And at that point, the lawyer stepped forward and said, right, how do you feel about a deal? Because it's either a deal or we're going to expose this roving bug in court. Now you've got it admitted. And at that point, they sit down and they become very reasonable. And Charlie would be the expert on this. And he's the one who argues, well, he's been caught in Holland. He would have got this in Holland for possession. And the workers in Holland were sentenced in Holland and they got very low sentences. So your grounds for giving him 12 years, you haven't got grounds for that. And the amount he was found with isn't that high either. So we're looking at low sentences here. And really, you should give my father, he should get five years, in which case all the others should get lower sentences because he's the top player. If he's the ceiling, then they should be getting fours and threes and twos. And they didn't like that. I don't think they really had a lot of choice from their point of view because it was a case of going into court with all these intercepts and all these arguments and this exposure and all this reporting, or they just do a deal and kind of get what they wanted because they want a conviction at the end of the day. And they've lost one and they let him slip away another time. And this time he's putting his hands up and for the first time in his life, he'll go guilty if you do this deal. And so my dad spoke to all the defendants. They, A lot of them didn't like the deal because they were looking to walk away. But they went to Winston Green that night. As they're transported over, they're all kind of expressing their thoughts and by morning, they've communicated enough to realise we're going to do this deal. And they all go forward. And that afternoon, they all, one by one, all plead guilty. And they all receive these low sentences. So that was the only time your dad ever pleaded guilty in his life? The really? The only time, yeah. On principle, he was always not guilty. To him, he, he saw it as a victory, even though he was getting some time. But then you do the maths and five years, he'd done a year. So it's four years. He ended up doing two years. So maybe he'd be out on tag. Another year and a half, two years, he'd be out on tag. So he didn't see it as a massive sentence. A best option he had. Yeah, he didn't see it as a, a massive victory for them because they wanted 10s and 12s and they got nowhere near it. That guilty plea was the culmination of the police operation that the police referred to as Operation Downpour. That's right, yeah. Even though the sentences were low, it was triumphant. The actual reports, they made sure it got maximum coverage. They had a cement mixer ready to use and it had been used, I think, for amphetamine before. So they labelled them the Cement Mixer Gang. And then they highlighted the ex-boxer and the prison governor and presented them as this diverse group, I suppose, of misfits and how they they kind of brought this gang down. And that was the last trial your dad went to, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the very last. He got sentenced to five years. What happened after that? He got down to a Catsea prison. I don't think he liked the Catsea prison because there were so many youngsters. I think he felt older because he was... He was, he was 60 odd by this point, and he was really an old, old school criminal. There weren't many old school criminals about by that point. Well, that just beggars belief. After everything that has just gone on, he's back at it again. Having assembled teams on either side of the channel, he gets back into drug importation. The police have clearly set their stall out in the guise of Operation Downpour to put an end to his activities. 
Tony is back on his cycle of arrest, extradition and prison. And it's while he's serving that prison sentence that he has devastating news after he has an x-ray for his ongoing chest problems. The first x-ray came back and it said, well, you're riddled with cancer throughout your lungs. And it was quite, it wasn't just a hint, it it was all throughout your lungs you've got cancer and it's terminal, there's just no doing this. And at that point it was, he seemed to kind of roll with it really. And he, he let me know on the phone, look, this isn't good but... I've got this cancer and it's terminal. The only good news is I might be able to get out early because they've only given me a few months. So at that point, it was going through this procedure to see whether he could get out before he died from this cancer. So they did release him. But by that point, he'd seen a a specialist who said, well, we can cut a lot of it out. And depending on how you react, we might get you a few more months. And if you do a round of chemo, he'd been released to his girlfriend by this point at this farm where he'd been staying. It was out in the countryside, very nice and everything. He, he went ahead, had this operation. It was quite savage. Uh, and he had he had this one round of chemo. It came through that and he seemed to age like 20 years overnight because it it really knocked him back. He was same in spirit, but visually it was just a real a real blow. But then he started to recover slowly, very slowly. But he, he wasn't doing any work whatsoever. All his friends were all locked up and everything. He wasn't allowed to have any phones either. And that was part of his release. But he started to recover. And I went to visit him and I could see he was, he was really bored. He was recovering from his cancer, started to think about what he was going to do. And he could see a little bit of fire rising up in him. But he was very bored sitting in this around this farmhouse that was luxurious and better than anything he could have bought from crime. But he was really bored. And as he got better, he, he wanted to go and do something again. And the partner he was with wouldn't stand it. And my dad was like, well, best thing is we best split off. I'm going to go my own way now. And so he left. And so one day I got a phone call just saying he'd left his girlfriend. And he was living in a, in a caravan on my daughter's drive who, who had a, a cottage out in the country. And I went up to the caravan. He stepped out and it was like his old self again. He's got a phone, just the one. He didn't have loads of phones. He was only allowed one. And he was on the phone talking to people. He was buying and selling stuff. And he started to sound like his old self and move like his old self. And he was quite cheerful as well. He was buying and selling again. And I listened to what he was doing. And then I asked about, well, what's happening with his cancer? And he was like, well, you know, I'm starting to feel a bit better now. And he says, we've been on the internet. We've located this cannabis oil that's for this type of cancer I've got. We've been researching it. I've got an order. I've got some mates out in Spain. They're going to send me this cannabis oil out. And we're going to start taking that. And they reckon it's going to get rid of this cancer even even though the doctors have said it's terminal and you've got months. He says, well, I've already done months and I'm feeling better than I was three months ago. And so the this cannabis oil arrives and he starts taking that. He starts doing this little business, buying and selling furniture like he did back in the 70s when he was a young man. And then the cannabis oil starts to reverse some of the cancer. He thinks, well, I'm feeling so good. I want to go to Spain again. I want my passport back. It's been released two years early, but he's entitled to his passport. And he has the argument with the, I don't know what official office it is, because the police don't want him to have a passport. It's like, you're supposed to be dead months ago. We only released you because you, you were dying. You'd even kind of, you know, were sorting out your funeral and everything. Uh, and here you are, and you want to go to Spain. And uh, But they couldn't stop him, so he started going to Spain again. Um, and while he was in Spain, he found out with the Spanish government, you could get licences to drug grow cannabis for medicinal reasons. So he started applying for his license because he had, he had cancer. Uh, and his idea was, well, with these licenses, I can start growing cannabis in Spain and I can start shipping it to the UK as an oil. And that's a hell of a fine business. And there's a big market for people who want medicinal cannabis. 
And so he starts working on this as his new venture. And then he starts seeing some of the old villains of old and said, well, why don't you put some money on this? We've, this, is a, this is a gold mine this is going to be. I can do this legally in Spain, can't be prosecuted. And then we'll just ship it to the UK and sell it at a high price. And so that's what he starts doing. Even though he's still got this cancer and the cancer's retreated, but then it won't retreat anymore. And then gradually it starts to come back. And he's got this race against time to get this uh, new business set up, this medicinal cannabis. And meanwhile, he's starting to get a bit more daring because he thinks, I've not got long now if they catch me. I'm not going to serve any sentence now. I'm kind of untouchable. So all of a sudden he starts dealing with a few Dutch people again and some Irish people and starting taking shipments passing through. And he's got people from Rotterdam flying. Because he's got cancer, people have come to him. And they think, well, he's not physically what it was, but he's got all these contacts that we just can't get. And he's got no use for them. He'll offload them. You know, so can you connect me up? With, I'll give you some money. Can you connect me up with these Colombian people or these Dutch people? Or And this is what starts out. He starts connecting all these people up. And meanwhile, he's got his lawyers in Spain because he's now got lawyers out there who were getting this medicinal cannabis all legal and stamped and everything. And there's a guy, a techno expert out there who insists, you know, we'll work together. And even if once you're gone, I'll carry on with this business. And right up to the end, because the cancer does come back, he's got this great scheme that's going to outlive him, this cannabis oil business. And he's got all the paperwork and everything. And in his final days, that's kind of the achievement he's going to leave. But during those last days, he doesn't express any regret about the life he's led. He seems quite happy that, you know, I'm going to die. There doesn't seem to be any fear there. It's just like, I've just got to finish these deals. Though. Just like when he got shot, well, I've got these deals I need to wrap up. I've made promises. I've got to keep them. And it's the same with this cannabis deal. But he got it all sorted. And then gradually, it was only the last week or two where he started to defeat him physically. And then he kind of slowly just went and passed away in his sleep. It's an amazing story, and I don't say that in an admiring kind of way. We'd never condone criminality in any guise. But I looked up the definition of amazing, and it says causing considerable surprise or astonishing. And Tony's story is certainly that. Now, before we get some last thoughts from Jason, you may recall that we mentioned that we'd like to get to talk to Charles Benson who defended Tony at some of those cases that we've already heard about. Obviously we've heard from family and friends but it would give another dimension to the story if we could talk to Mr Benson and get some insight into his relationship with Tony. So we were delighted when Mr Benson agreed to contribute to the podcast and he invited us and Jason to speak to him. Charlie, I understand that you were the barrister that defended Tony on a couple of occasions. But before we get into that, can you just tell us what your title means? Because I understand you're you're now a King's Counsel. A King's Counsel, formerly a Queen's Counsel, is an appointment. Um, it's something. It's a position that you have to apply for, and one might conceitedly say that if you're um, meet the criteria, which is um, based upon interview, written work and, and, and other things, and you're assessed by a panel, then you're uh, given the great honour of that appointment of Queen's Council. With the death of the monarch, one automatically became King's Council, so you are counsel to the King and you swear your allegiance to the Crown. And I think 
also it's called taking silk. It is, and that is because the normal gowns that are worn by barristers are buff, and the silks gown, whether the QC's gown, is differentiated a in its shape, but also because it's made of silk. Could you tell me when you first came across uh, Tony? I couldn't tell you the year because it's so many years ago, but it was uh, in a case that was taking place in Birmingham Crown Court. Thinking back, it fell across 1999 and 2000, so I would probably have met him first in about 1998 or 1999. And what did you actually defend him against on that occasion? On that occasion, he was being charged with the production of uh, Class C drugs, being amphetamine. And whereabouts did you meet him? Was he actually in prison? Did you visit him in prison? The first time I met him, he was in prison, yes. And he'd heard about me from people that he knew, and he seemed to know me very well even before we'd ever met. So he'd done his homework? I think so, yes. We're right in saying that you're a barrister can prosecute and defend, but, but some specialise in defence work. A lot of people would tell you that they defend and they prosecute in equal measure. I've known certain barristers who've said that when they've actually only ever defended in a single case. Um, I'm not going to tell that lie. I have never prosecuted. I have only ever defended. So in the world that Tony was circulating, and because, as we all know, and it's acknowledged and history tells us he, he was a criminal, he obviously would go to somebody who he had faith to defend him. I like the way you put that. Yes, I hope that he had that faith, and I hope that faith was merited. He came to me because he knew that I was a hard worker. Also, I think, because myself and this chap called Dermot Wright had some imagination, um, but we didn't judge people, and we weren't the sort of people who would simply give up on anybody. So Tony was at an advantage that, having done his homework, he knew who he was going to be talking to, mm. which is at an advantage, because obviously the first meeting that you have with him, you don't know what Tony is going to present like. No. What was your first impression of him? That's a very good question. He came across like everybody's favourite uncle, uh, or even grandpa, although he wasn't an old man. He was very sanguine, he was very contained, he was very charming, and he was very respectful. He was a kind of person who was a pleasure to meet. We've got Jason, Tony's son, with us today. We've met only a few months ago, Jason and Sally and myself, and we uh, have read... Jason's book called The Old Man about his father's life and activities. You've read that book, I presume. Mm. Is it a fairly accurate portrayal from from yourself as, as what Tony was like? Yeah, I think it was a very balanced account. I think it's also very well written. Um, but he, he was a captivating character and somebody who was quite mesmerising because uh, I've said a thousand times and many of I'm sure have said it too, but he was a chap who was like a, a, a wily old fox who loved to hear the hounds, was never happier than when he could hear the hounds behind him. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting analogy, isn't it? Absolutely, because when Jason and I first met and he said my dad's a, a gangster and, and then we got talking and we've got to know Jason over the months since so we're, we're better informed now and we've read the book it's quite clear that uh, from what Jason and I'm sure you'll you'll say the same he, he was certainly a player on the field and also a cunning fox in many respects when we had a bit of banter with Jason and I said well you know I from the police side got satisfaction of the thrill of the chase and you know chasing these people as much as he probably got from 
avoiding being caught. And, it, and I think you use the words, Jason, it's like looking in a mirror, isn't it? On one side is Tony and on the other side is, is us. And it was sort of a groundbreaking moment, wasn't it, Jason, yeah, for us? We yeah. thought, well, these people, we're talking the same language on different sides of the fence, really. Yeah. I would correct you on one thing. He was not a gangster. It's probably, yeah, I would agree with from what we know now, obviously, but it was, it's the way that yeah. uh, Jason some introduced... Would, some people would perceive him that, that way. They would. Yes. But all close, when you get to know him, you, yeah. it's difficult to see him that way. Yes. yes. I mean, to clear that that's up, right. he's not like what you perceive as a gangster, a thug, but that's how you introduced him, wasn't it, when, yeah. when we met? And we did, Sally and I, sort of take a, a deep breath and thought, is this something we ought to be looking at? But the more we looked, the more intriguing it got. We and took a step back to start with, didn't yes. we? And then when we knew a little bit more, we took we took a step forward again. And, of course... Well, he was a naughty chap. He was a naughty chap, he engaging. You couldn't help but like Tony because he, he captured your imagination. But there was, nothing, there was nothing harmful or vicious or unkind about him at all. And he'd do a person a good turn, and, and, and in preference to a bad... Um, I mean, I'm sh absolutely sure that I say that with, without fear of doubt or, uh, uh, or recrimination. He, he, he was a decent man. And that's, I, I liked him. And I'm sure if he was around today, and Jason's mentioned, and no doubt we'll, we'll come on to one of the cases he got uh, found not guilty and the police sort of wouldn't shake his hand. Well, I said to you, Jason, straight away, I said, I'd have shook his hand and said, you've won today, Tony, but there is tomorrow, mm. and it might be the other way round. But good luck to you. And that's the sort of feel I got for him and people mm. like that I've met in the past. And I think that's true, isn't it? It is true. I think in that world, you would always hope that both sides played fair. And I think it's always disappointing if you come away thinking that one hadn't. But at the end of the day, um, as you rightly say, he was acquitted in, the, in that big case, in the teeth of the evidence. Can we move on to that case then, to mm -hmm. talk in a bit more... as? You know, as, mm -hmm. as you wish to go. From what we know, he was accused of a conspiracy to supply or import mm. the drugs. manufacture and and supply. He was using a yard. He was using that as a headquarters. And his defence was was what to the drugs? It wasn't that there were there weren't drugs. There was something else, was it? His his case was that he was not involved in in the manufacture of amphetamine at all and that uh, those people that said that he was were simply lying, and that uh, the police had sought to frame him and to, to uh, plant drugs on him. And that came down to a single kilo, which was the only amount of drugs that were actually ever discovered. The only other occasion, there was a person whose name probably isn't needed for, for these purposes, but they were twins, and this p person... Um, claimed that he'd seen Tony wearing smocks. and I don't remember what the word that, that people use when you're wearing um, uh, medical equipment, but you know, one of these one-piece suits. And there he was with a, a mixer, cement mixer in a house, uh, covered in dust from where he was loading up mm. uh, um, amphetamine. Interestingly, this person's brother gave evidence and his evidence was rather different and it was plain which one the jury preferred. And am I right, the trial lasted approximately five months? Yes. And did Tony play a major part in his defence from how he presented evidence or information to yourself? Tony was somebody who was characteristically a very hard worker. Um, he was also um, completely and utterly in touch with his case 
and alert to everything else that was going in on in the case and to the particular individuals who had a role to play. And so it was an interactive performance. Nobody who performed in that case could say that there was that the result of the, of the success was theirs particularly. It was genuinely a joint effort between all of us. Which is unusual, I think. You you'll know better than I because you defended many many people. That's mm. you don't get many people like Tony, do you? No, you get many people who try to take a, an active interest in their case, but a lot of them. I don't wish to be disrespectful to them. A lot of them get the wrong end of the stick. Um, and it's very easy to, to pursue a, a, a hare down a hole when you're really supposed to have been chasing a rabbit. But Tony wasn't like that. He was, he was very well focused. And he was as game as a lark. I mean, he, he, he did not lack courage. Going back to discussions with Jason, he'd been in prison for offences for many years, off and on, probably got away with a lot more than he ever got caught for. And he used that time in prison to educate himself, didn't he? And, mm. and perfect his knowledge and skills at court, mm. law, uh, and no doubt that was what he enjoyed doing as well. The only problem is in, in the kind of world in which he lived is that you can't do these things on your own. So you have to recruit other people, you have to interact with other people, and they become the, the, the weak link in your chain. Because he was an accomplished businessman, Legitimately, he was, and made quite a, a considerable amount of money. Quite mm. legitimately, that wouldn't have interested him though, <laughs> not at all. There's no excitement in doing something like that, not for Tony. Bless him. I, I remember a case many years before, nothing, not involving him, where it was said that a perfectly legitimate business had been corrupted by a criminal who'd come into it, and I couldn't quite understand, but Tony did. He said, "Well, of course, it just wasn't fun." Uh, for that person and, 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 and that's what his life was about it was about fun and the thrill of the chase and as you say mm. the fox and could hear the hounds but not get caught yeah and when he was caught um, he didn't quibble or complain about it he just got on with it it was just another part of the life that he'd chosen to lead Jason says that um, you know he didn't hold any grudges nope. it, he was a model prisoner when sentenced and used it to his advantage to gain contacts inside and educate himself, ready for the next caper, call yeah. it what we will, when he got caper. out. Caper, it was. His life was one big caper <laughs> after another. But, but also, just pausing there, as a prisoner, as you say, a model prisoner, because he didn't hold anything against anybody. This was part of the route that you had to take um, if you were going to pursue that particular kind of career. If you're going to commit crime, you get caught, you go to jail, then it's nobody else's fault but your own. You do things the right way. But he was very supportive of other people um, who um, were more vulnerable than he was, a person people could go to and respect, um, and he abhorred bullying and people being taken advantage of. And going back to the case, five months is a long time, isn't it, in the mm. Crown Court case? And the prosecution thought it was going to last a month, <laughs> and, had, and had said that it it would it wouldn't last a day more than a month. And the voir dire took more nearly twice that. What's a voir? What, what's that term? A voir dire is a trial within a trial. So what it means is that uh, let's say, for example, that uh, that you're saying that the evidence that's being deployed has been gained illegally and properly, whatever. Just to take an example. Um, and the judge accedes to an application to hear evidence about that on that issue um, and then will make a determination at the end of it as to whether or not the case can proceed 
just in simple terms. Well, the, a voir dire is usually something which takes uh, perhaps four days, perhaps a week. Uh, in this case, it took several months. Was that because Tony had done a lot of delving and digging and challenging the evidence? It was a combination of things. Um, we had a, a person I consider to be the finest criminal barrister that the country has known in my, in my career, leading me, a man called Dermot Wright, who was one of the most naughty devils that ever drew, drew breath. And he took absolutely every point uh, and caused complete and utter mayhem um, for that period of the voir dire. Uh, he'd been encouraged to do so um, by the admonition from the prosecution that uh, that they would not be worn down by him and the case would last four weeks. Well, we the, the verdict came in, I think, in the first or second week of, of uh, January 2000. Um, we having started, I think, in um, August in 1999. We had two juries as well, didn't yes. we? Yes. Yeah, that was another point. During the five-month trial, he sat next to the jury. He had to, mm. so we dismissed the first one, which, yeah. which we'll not go into. But the second one, obviously, they heard the evidence. And did they take a shine to Tony as a person, do you think? Do you know, it's very difficult to tell with juries because so many times you see a jury retiring and they look at your client or they don't look at your client and you perceive that they've taken a particular view of him and his case. And it's almost inevitable that the result that comes back is the antithesis to what you're expecting. So uh, there were plainly people in the jury um, who did not believe the evidence that was being deployed by the prosecution. And there was body language you could perceive. But whether or not that was because they liked Tony or they didn't like the evidence, um, I wouldn't venture to suggest. But it wasn't a prisoner that was... Because some of them are very bolshy, aren't they, in the box no, and aggressive, uh, no. um, disrespectful to the court? No. He was the exact opposite of that. Um, he was dignified. Um, he was consistent. There were certain of his answers that I suppose if you looked at them really carefully, you would think they were unbelievable, uh, but they were delivered beautifully. Um, and probably they wouldn't have been things which the jury would have been too bothered about anyway. Um, but he was entirely respectful. Uh, he refused to be goaded uh, or provoked. And uh, he was balanced in his answers and his conduct. He, he behaved like a gentleman but that's what he was if you met tony spencer outside the court or anywhere he is immaculately dressed he used to wear a, a flat cap or, or or a hat but he would he would be like uh, a gentleman that you would meet at the races that's a very nice description of him isn't it and <laughs> as i say unfortunately we've never met him but it seems a common thing that, that's that's the theme that's coming through mm. from the people that we have spoken to yeah um because I think if, if we listen to what Jason says, it, it, we're going to have somewhat a biased um, uh, opinion or description of his of his father. But it just seems like everybody that we talk to mm. says, you know, regardless of what Tony got up to, he was a, he was a gentleman and mm. he was very approachable, very helpful, um, and he was obviously very disciplined towards his actions, albeit his criminal actions. He was running a business and he perceived it as a business. The, the, you know, the, the, the difference only being that what he was doing 
didn't meet the legal tenets of the day. Uh, but, but as far as he was concerned, it was a business, and he performed and acted as a director of a company would, or, or somebody who had a position of responsibility. And at the end of the trial, I think his defence was that it, he had been handling certain products, but they weren't drugs, they were cigarettes. Yeah. And obviously the jury found him not guilty of the drug offences. What did he do after the verdict? His behaviour was gentlemanly then, I understand. He was. In all things he was. So he, he didn't change just because he'd been acquitted. He didn't sort of jump around or sort of do cartwheels in the back of the court or balance a ball on his nose. He was just exactly himself. Very sort of modest, um, very contained. Um, I didn't see it, but I understand that he went to shake the hand of the, uh, the senior officer in the case. And it's quite disappointing that the senior officer refused his hand. Had it been the other way around and he'd been convicted and the officer had offered him his hand, he would have taken it. And I know many cases where these things have happened and there hasn't been that animosity. It may be because in that particular case, uh, the inescapable conclusion must have been from the jury that there were things that may have been done um, that didn't accord with uh, public policy, if I can put it that way. And after the case, most Crown Courts are in town centres, city centres mm -hmm. near public houses. The jury and others ended up in a public house nearby, I understand. I understand that so, yeah. <laughs> Going back to how we now know Tony's personality is that he thanked them and bought them a drink and there was a subsequent night out, which obviously uh, is unusual. But yes. <laughs> but... The police, we understand, arrested or interviewed the jury thinking they'd been got at, but it was just Tony being Tony and thanking them for what he thought was justice. I didn't know about it at the time until some time afterwards, um, but I, I would say that it was Tony doing exactly what Tony does, and that was sticking two fingers up at the team that prosecuted him, uh, but with a sense of humour rather than sort of with any animosity, and provoking them. And I do understand, too, that, that that activity, I mean, that his taking them out for a drink or for a meal or whatever, did cause uh, ructions and hard feelings. Uh, and there was investigations. But that kind of thing is not unusual. I mean, there have been cases I've been involved in in other places in the country where um, a an acquittal uh, has taken place in the prosecution and have felt very bitter about it. And uh, they've... They've undergone the same, but juries have been looked at in the same way. Um, and not just juries, but other people as well. So, it, 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 in, in my view, it's sour grapes. But I also think that Naughty Tony was provoking the police, quite frankly, and, and took great pleasure in it. But as you rightly say, nothing came of it, and it was shown that it was totally harmless. So after that trial had finished, did you see anything of Tony? or did not I did, actually. Um, he visited me in London. Once or twice, just socially, I uh, just popped in um, to see me, which was very nice. And he also used to send little portfolios of documents that uh, that he'd sort of put together, uh, where he'd sort of seen or noticed a particular legal point that he thought was interesting. And in sort of, uh, I would imagine it was in in his few but uh, uh, but uh, valuable free time, he sort of used to come up with these skeleton arguments in the style of a lawyer, illustrated with articles and on some occasions with uh, 
legal text. Do you think he wanted to be a barrister? No, he wanted to be a criminal. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't exciting enough for him. No. I think he liked that work when he was inside. Yes, he liked, exactly. But once he was out, yes, yeah, yeah. He just couldn't no patience for it once he was out. No, he, he had. He, now that is something. Yeah. What you've just named it. He was not a patient person. He wanted everything done yesterday. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't somebody. He wasn't someone who could sit around. So therefore, he always worked. I understand he worked almost. I say worked. I say that his criminal business was a business. He ran it like a business. But bless him, he was working right up until the last. Hmm. I mean, from Jason's description, he's out first thing in the morning with all his yep. lists and his phones and he's on the case and gone. And but I also think that he did try to, to go straight. I, he was very proud of Jason and, and Jason had two publications before the book, which were clever, very clever pieces of work. But unfortunately, dear old Tony, it was just beyond him. He, I, I think whereas he started well and his, and his, sort of his, his hopes... And his direction was sort of well placed because he was the kind of person who just couldn't sit still and everything had to be done yesterday uh, he, he wouldn't have been able to to uh, to cope with <laughs> a, a straight sort of business where he wasn't in control and he wasn't sort of maneuvering so what was the next occasion professionally when you met tony that was in again at uh, birmingham crown court and it was, again, a drugs case. Um, and it involved, this time it was importation, and it involved his dealings with people in Holland and interceptions of communications in Holland and telephone material in the UK. One of the issues that we were raising was whether the British authorities had looked to circumvent the prohibition on the liberation of intercepted material into the trial process in the UK by using the Dutch to perform that activity for them. Are we right in saying that in Holland that is admissible? It can become libera is liberated, yes. Yeah. And in yeah. the end, without complicating it for the yeah. listeners, for his once and only time in his life, <laughs> he pleaded guilty to guilty. some offences. Yes. It was against the grain. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a natural thing for him to do, but there were other considerations that, because he was an honourable man, there are other considerations that played upon him, and in order to do the right thing by others, he pleaded guilty himself. He would not have pleaded guilty had he been involved in a trial on his own, um, or where those other considerations didn't play a part. If you gave him a, a, a joint of marijuana, I used the example before in relation to somebody else, and said, you know, rather than uh, risking 20 years, um, for an importation, if you just plead guilty to this single joint of marijuana for personal use, um, he would have fought the trial nonetheless. Never give in. Never give in. And never complain. If, if having not given in, you were convicted, uh, he didn't complain about that either. And from what you say, his attitude towards you didn't change any. No. That was part of the game. It was a decision he made on full information. So he, he, and because he wasn't stupid, one was able to put to him X, Y and Z. These are the risks. This is the likely the outcome. The end of the day, the decision is yours. There are other considerations as well, which I don't want to go into, but they don't involve him. Save that other people may have been left vulnerable had he decided to fight a trial. And so for all those reasons, um, he took the plea. His choice. Yeah, his choice. Yeah. Absolutely his choice. Everything Tony did 
in his life was his choice. I mean, I mean, I say everything. I understand that there were as there were certain occasions where there was a an, an incident which was unpleasant abroad, um, but in all things he was the guiding feature. He 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 followed his own instinct. Um, he was loyal to his beliefs, um, and he stood up for what he believed in. I mean, within the context of of what he did, but he also was a man who did not involve anybody apart from the people with who with whom he worked professionally to the outside world he was that benevolent uncle so not just his choice it was his considered choices it was his considered choices that's my belief yes yes he chose what he was thereafter i heard from him twice both indirectly which was very sad uh, both came from my business partner roger ingram uh, who told me that tony had phoned the office and that he'd said that he wasn't well I had tried to get in touch with him to wish him well and hadn't appreciated how unwell he was. And then the next time I saw that he really, really wasn't well and then the tragically the next time was from you. I was very saddened. I actually thought the world had lost a real character. You know, through your many years in the bar, how many people like Tony have you met? Oh, not many. I mean, there have been, there have been char- plenty of characters, but uh, people like Tony? No, probably... T- I, it, it, it wouldn't be on one hand. Uh, and they wouldn't all. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have all those individual ingredients together in one place. Some of them would have some of those ingredients, but they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have brought them all together. And what's your lasting memory of Tony? Do you know, it's 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 a it's a kind memory. I found him fun. I enjoyed working with him. I enjoyed the time that we spent together. I enjoyed the fact that we succeeded, and that particularly in that first trial, that was a career moment for me actually. Uh, and it was the right, to me, it was the right decision. I don't care what anybody else says. And it was hard, it was tough, it was hard. And we were not well liked, we were not well thought of. But the decision was the jury's and it was the right decision. So I have lasting memories, all fond. Well, it's been a really interesting insight into your world. And uh, and we thank you very much for giving us the time to be able to discuss um, Tony and your involvement with Tony and also your your own personal thoughts about Tony. Well, I'm very actually grateful to, to my friend here um, for giving me that opportunity because he, he said, I've got, I still have the two pamphlets, not pamphlets, they're cartoons, books. I still have them, one of them which is signed, but they actually are very valuable to me. Um, they mean a lot to me. Um, it was meant a lot to me that, that I was asked to, to, uh, to read that book. I'm very touched to be mentioned in it. It is not conventional for barristers to want to talk in the way that I have talked about a particular client. And I'm sure that my profession would castigate me for doing so and think that I was too close to my clients and whatever else. I don't care. Um, the fact is, I spoke as I found. And it's it, and I spoke honestly about somebody who was someone who I thought was fun and a decent man. He was a very lucky man to have met you, wasn't he? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, um, he was. <laughs> well, it'd be nice to think. It's like, I'm sure if we'd have met him, we would have got the same impression. Yeah. Everybody else tells us this. Mm. And he was what he was. He was a rascal, wasn't he, rather no, than a... <laughs> he was a... That's, ex- that's the word. That's what he was. He was a rascal. Jason, anything else you'd like to ask It's just Charlie? lovely hearing you speak about him the way, the way you have. I can see him now, but do you imagine a slightly sort of large jaw, and his, his and, and he, his head was always his head was always up, uh, and he was a tall man, um, but totally deadpan.
and quiet, softly spoken man. So he, he did have that understatement to everything. Yeah. And that's that thing where you could say something quite remarkable and he'd say it as if it was the most normal thing <laughs> yes, in the exactly. world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the other int- which you weren't involved with was the yeah. counterfeit one, wasn't it? Oh, where, the dollar, yeah. Where mm. he had to represent himself for the last four weeks or so and conducted the trial mm. and summing up and he was convicted of that, but... It was a rich experience for him, that one. Yeah. But the judge... <laughs> did commend him on Commended his intent, him for, yeah. for his abilities <laughs> before he sentenced him to 11 sentence. years in prison. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, that's something I did wonder about was his relationships with the authorities because he had a long history going back to, well, Coventry in the 70s. He was supposed to have associations with the Irish and that sort of thing. Mm. And then later with the counterfeit dollars and I understood uh, some of the FBI came over because of that case. Mm. And I wondered if there's any sort of like personal animosity with... It's interesting. I mean, I, I think because he was a larger-than-life character and because he, I think they perceived he got away with so much, yeah. they were desperate, absolutely desperate to make an example of him and to, and, to, and to get him for something. He knew everybody, but he wasn't the kind of person who would have been associated with the Irish, in my view. He may yeah. have known people, but I, I don't see it. To, uh, to me, he did his own thing. Um, he accommodated people, but he was his own man and there were, and there were things that he, he just would not do. He was his own man. And that's why I say he wasn't a gangster. He was not a gangster. He didn't have a gang. He didn't call upon people to do things for him. I mean, he may have had he may have had sort of employees, just as um, uh, a company, someone who's running a company, has people he deploys to do various things. But also, all, none of those people did anything that they didn't want to do. They all knew what they were doing, and they had you know, none of them had a right to complain. Um, about what they did. They weren't forced, they weren't bullied, they weren't cajoled, and they were always treated respectfully. We could talk all day, I am sure. Thank you so much. Not at all. Because, as you say, this is a very unusual circumstance to be able to talk to a barrister about one of his clients so fondly, and mm. which mirrors what everybody else has said. And I'm sure the listeners will find it fascinating that this world exists, that they wouldn't otherwise hear about. One, one has to remember, if you're doing a case which lasts for those many months, there's also all those many, many months of preparation. So you get to know somebody by dint of that preparation and the contact you have to have with them very, very well, because you spend more time with them than your own family at the end. So consequently, it's, it, it, it shouldn't be such a surprise. Uh, I think the surprise is that most people don't really like to talk about it. But, you know, it is a fact. You spend more time with the client in these situations and you get to know them far better than perhaps you even get to know your best friends. A bit like police work, Sally, isn't it? Mm. You spend a lot of time away from home. Yes, like in the days when we used to have one day off together. Mm. We used to have a Thursday off once a month. <laughs> And that was it. And the only reason I knew that it'd been in the house was the fridge was empty. (laughs) What a privilege to speak with Mr Benson. Although we have heard from him and others that Tony was polite, charming and even described as a gentleman, that doesn't detract from the fact he was heavily involved in criminality and took another man's life all those years before. We wanted to tell the story of Tony Spencer the criminal from the perspective of Jason, his son. So to finish off, we asked Jason for his thoughts about the journey he'd been on and the charity he supports. 
And at the end of the day, was there a big pot of money left? He spent pretty much everything he had. Um, and I think he was quite happy to do that. I don't think at, at the end he he really had no vanity about I've got this, I've earned this. The satisfaction seemed to be I've done this and I did that and I it was what he did was kind of the real pleasure he had. And maybe that's what it really was about. It really wasn't about having money or saying, look at this fine house or this fine car. It was I was the one who printed hundreds of millions of dollars and I might have got caught, but I did that and I robbed these banks. And I smuggled all this hash and I travelled the world doing all these things. And that seemed to be what he was happy doing. What he was, if anything, if he had any pride, it was for that. I mean, obviously, you you didn't get involved greatly in your father's activities, put it that way. But you're on the periphery. Yeah. But you've never been arrested. You've got no convictions. No. Police, if they had evidence, would have used it, I'm sure. Because, I mean, you must have featured heavily in some of the surveillance and evidence. Yeah, gathering. it was always, I think, because I'd seen how much time he'd spent inside, it made me doubly cautious and trying to do everything you can to make sure it doesn't happen to you. When in doubt, you step back and you let things go. And it's that lesson. He said, money doesn't really matter. It's other things matter. But as him, it was about this game of being a criminal. For me, it was maybe writing or drawing or paint. They're the things I had a family. They're the things I cared about. And hence you've written your book. And that's really how the book comes about. But it is kind of connected to the way he used to think, which when he was inside all this obsession with learning and education and if you put your mind to something, you can teach yourself anything. And that was quite similar with the book where I thought, I can actually do this if I put my mind to it because it's kind of what he taught me, I suppose. And I think having both of us read the book on more than one occasion now, that a gangster's story, it... It certainly is. It certainly is the story of a man that leads that kind of lifestyle, but also a son's journey. To a certain extent, I feel like I've been that on that journey with you because throughout the book, I suppose you're asking yourself questions. Mm. Um, why did he do that? Why did he do this? And I I find myself talking at the book, yeah, why did he do that? That's a good question. What? Why did that happen? And I think the last... Probably the last five chapters actually explain what you have learned during that journey. Yeah, it's the last five chapters, as I got older, where I began to understand him more. And a lot of that was accepting they were his choices and the way he lived, but then understanding why they were his choices and how it was quite inevitable that he was the way he was because he had a past and a history and the things he'd learnt. And he had this thing with authority that he had to win and they had to be cleverer. And that was kind of quite early on. He, he always had that. And I would learn to accept that. And that was the way I, I eventually understood him. Which is sort of quite sad, really, isn't it? Because he had the ability, the skill, the nous for business. No doubt a different path would have made him a, somebody outstandingly rich. Yeah, which is... legitimate business. Which is what a lot of people would say. If he just stayed out of crime, he just would have been a millionaire. Mm. But he didn't seem to want that that much. No. He wanted something, a millionaire and this. And it was the and this that made him into the criminal he was. Um, and it was kind of accepting that. As much as I wanted him to be that businessman who he didn't want to really be it that much. It was kind of part of his journey, but it was the crime that really excited him and gave him the life that he wanted. The life I want, the person I wanted him to be, he just didn't want to be like that. It was too quiet for him. It wasn't excited enough. Not enough. Yeah, and it, the rewards weren't enough and the power wasn't enough. Mm. He just wanted this large-scale life. And it might be it comes to an end every now and then, every time they catch you and go to prison. But each time he chose to do it again. 
I mean, the sad thing, just to finish and wrap up with, is that he led that life, but he affected so many other people, didn't he? As yeah. you as a child and your brother and sister, and that sort of your thoughts have gone that way now with the charity work you do. Because it's it's the part that doesn't really get highlighted is how it affects the people around him, other, other criminals as well. Because it affects the children because they haven't opted into this, and even the partners haven't. They get on, they kind of link up with the someone like my dad thinking... Well, he is going to be this businessman and he is, can make these because he can do all these things. And it takes a while for them to accept he's not that way. He doesn't want to be that way. And the children themselves have no influence. You're kind of just along for the ride. But you kind of, there's a certain degree of deprivation and things you have to adapt to that really you probably shouldn't, but it's just the way it is. What happened to you can never be reversed, can it? No, you don't realise till later because it, it stays with you. You realise it was more traumatic than you thought it was. Because it's all you've ever known. It's only later you realise the experience stays with you. And when I was younger, I had a sense that things weren't right and you need help. But there wasn't anyone to help at that point. No institutions. And so recently when I came across the charity Children Heard and Seen, where they're actually trying to help children who've got uh, parents in prison and who can't make sense of it and need support, they're trying to step in and help those children and try and persuade government to take over that sort of role as well. And a lot of that is getting rid of some of the visibility they've got where... They're not, they don't, people, journalists don't write about this and they don't feature in books. And so there isn't really any organisations to help them. No one really thinks about them. So the charity is trying to change the way people think about this and they actually, just, so it's actually discussed and people respond and then think, well, that's not right. We should probably do something because at the end of the day, these children, they haven't really done anything wrong and they just happen to be related. And we can do a lot better by these children because the charity is there, but it's still not getting the support and attention and it's not getting into the public domain where journalists are writing about it and see it as something important. There's all these different crimes, but the children aren't involved in any of them, but they've all been treated the same way. And let's highlight it on the podcast that it's, you know, we've sat and talked about your father's life. So the next stage on is let's talk about your experiences of life and how that can that experience can be taken to talking about children of prisoners and how that affects their lives and how that could be built on in the future to help those children who go through what you went through yeah years ago we've mentioned that you studied psychology and you got a degree in psychology yeah. was that part of this path to try and understand what was happening that was part of it i started the psychology degree when my dad was still alive but no doubt some of it was trying to understand him kind of led me towards psychology but it's also that understanding people also and understanding myself, I guess. And that kind of always interests me, why people do what they do. But it probably did start with trying to understand why my father did what he did. So he's kind of he's kind of has some responsibility for me going in that direction. But then that kind of feeds into the fact I did start writing about his story once it passed away, thinking he had this great story of being a gangster, but what made it relevant would be the other side of it, which would be my perspective on that and how it changed throughout my life from being that young kid where your father goes to prison and there's no one there to help to being an adult and seeing how the cycle keeps repeating itself and then seeing how there's other children out there who still don't get any help. They've got the same level of help I got, which is really nothing really. You kind of It's just kind of random. What sort of family have you got? Fortunately, we had a few family members who were there but then there's some kids who have no family to help them. Mm. So it kind of leads to where we are now, where 
I'm writing and then seeing like this writing could help this charity. And finally, I know we've touched on it. You witnessed firsthand, you know, from the day you were born to where you are today. You've studied the criminal justice system. You've studied how your father reacted to prison and used it really to his advantage in many respects. Yeah. What's your take on how we stop people like your father? Because I'm coming back to it's always churns round in the news, especially when there's elections going on that we're going to stop crime or come hard on crime. But I don't think anything that the British legal system could do to your father would have ever stopped him. What what do you think the answer is, if there is one? All the efforts gone in to get people drug dealing and smuggling, the drugs were regulated. That would take away a lot of the, the jobs of criminals, I guess. A lot of them couldn't go on being criminals because it's quite an easy crime to commit and get away with. And I think if the state took charge of that... That would make many criminals unemployed overnight and it would shrink that population as well. Uh, It'd make it more difficult for certain criminals to thrive because at the minute it's all through society and as my dad's last case showed, there's all sorts of people drawn into it now. I think that would help. Would my father, like you said, would anything have ever stopped him? Mm. I mean, if he'd become this millionaire businessman when he was younger, I think he still would have done it. It was just into it. It was built into his character, I think. But um, it didn't have to involve so many people and be made so easy. Well, I think we've covered everything, Sally, haven't we? And remains on us. I think it's the most fantastic story. The book is brilliant. No doubt, there's things that we've talked about in the podcast that won't be in the book, and there's incidents that are in the book that we haven't talked about in the podcast. So between the podcast and the book, it's a complete picture. Yeah, it's a greater picture. It's a greater do, picture, yes, that's the word. they do complement one another that way. Yes, and for that we're very grateful. So thank you, Jason, for all you've told us and, as I say, fascinating story. I'd urge all our listeners to read the book The Old Man and Me by Jason Wilson and, as they say, fact is stranger than fiction. As we're coming to the end of this series, what's the next project we have, Sally? That's a good question, John. It's the story of an escaped prisoner who inflicted life-threatening injuries on the prison officers who were guarding him. Once he goes on the run, the prisoner holds a family hostage in their own home. He murders all but one of that family. Then, knowing that the police are closing in, he takes his remaining hostage in a car and drives at speed through the night. But the police are right behind him. So keep listening, stay subscribed to hear the stories as they are released and we can assure everyone there will be more in the coming weeks and months. This podcast series was produced by Pete Allen, the executive producer, and our producer, Angelica Dabbs, from Carrot Cruncher Media.